0: Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan.
1: Our first scripture reading this morning comes from Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. The days are surely coming, says the Lord when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
2: Our second reading is from Luke's Gospel in the 21st chapter, verses 25 through 36. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Jesus said, There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress among the nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and of the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up. And raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life, and that the day does not catch you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all who live on the face of the earth. Be alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Signs, distress, confusion, fear, foreboding. Well, welcome to the first Sunday of Advent. Shall we sing or should we pray again? This rapid-fire speech from Jesus reminds us of Israel's prophets. It's the first-century equivalent of a mic drop, and it's more than a little unsettling, isn't it? We might do well to let it stay that way, even as we wonder how it's good news for us today. A fellow pastor and I were talking about how on some particular Sundays we approach preaching with just a tad more fear and trembling than usual. He said that parts of Luke's gospel much like this one, remind him of an unlikely connection, a scene from the movie Talladega Nights, the ballad of Ricky Bobby. Imagine this scene with me, if you will. The family encircles the table, and Ricky Bobby prays, Dear Lord, baby Jesus. Dear tiny infant Jesus. Dear sweet, sweet baby Jesus. And his wife interrupts him. Jesus did grow up, you know, you don't always have to call him baby. To which he responds, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm the one saying grace. My colleague's point was that we probably all like the Christmas Jesus best, but that's not the one that we find in today's passage from Luke. Where is Luke's Jesus of hospitality, gentleness, and compassion for widows, orphans, and the poor? Where is the tiny infant baby Jesus? This Jesus is more like the prophet Jeremiah with the divine word burning in his heart and in his bones. And I wonder about the tone with which he painted this jarring scene in our gospel reading. As he approaches his death, Jesus seems to become frustrated that those around him don't recognize the signs of God's inbreaking reign, and they're not reorienting their lives around the values of the kingdom or the kingdom with appropriate urgency. His imagery, nations confused and distressed, the roaring of the sea, heavenly bodies shaken, people fainting from sheer terror, is startling. Maybe it brings to mind the judgment of Second Peter, fire next time. Or closer yet, maybe the visions of the Jewish apocalyptic writings like the book of Daniel. Whatever the case, it's hardly the type of scene that we've come to associate with the Christmas Jesus. We can't assemble it neatly on our mantles like a crèche. We show up looking for the Son of God coming to us cradled in a manger, and instead we get the Son of Man coming in a cloud to judge the nations. We show up ready to jump to the major keys of Christmas carols, and instead we hear the minor keys of hymns that force us to slow down and wait instead of celebrate. Through a mixture of communal wisdom and maybe some divine humor, on the first Sunday of Advent, the liturgical and lectionary cycles, that is, the church's calendar and the pre-selected group of texts that we sometimes use to plan worship, make it so that we show up at the beginning of the church's year to hear about the end of days. And every year, the lectionary gives us Jesus' words about the apocalypse. So just as we're sorting through those social media posts, email forwards, and other messages about the meaning of Christmas, we encounter a message that forces us to deeply engage with the mystery of the Incarnation. We're filled anew with wonder in this season that we may come to think that we know so well, regardless of whether we've grown up in the church or have come here by another way. And in that wonder we experience the interplay of challenge and hope. We hear anew the story of God's arrival and ongoing activity among us. We listen to Jeremiah's projection of a future of peace and safety for an exiled people who were in despair. And we do so with our ears attuned to the good news of great joy that just such a leader, one from David's line, one from the house of Judah, has already come to the world as a newborn baby. And yet we hear the grown-up Jesus himself tell us that he will come again to fulfill the promise of shalom, of the whole world's eventual peace and wholeness, which we know all too well remains incomplete in the present. Challenge and hope. One of the challenges that I suspect that we face today is the whole concept of the second coming. Unlike Jesus' earliest followers, we, especially, maybe, in this so-called mainline, Protestant, um, moderately progressive church, and in a university town, nonetheless, may not be the most vigilant for Jesus' return and for a final judgment. It's been about two millennia since his execution, after all. And I've confessed to our 8 a.m. worship crowd before that sometimes I even find it a difficult doctrine to believe, on an intellectual level at least. I can go from one recitation of the Lord's Prayer to the next before the phrase, Thy kingdom come, jolts me back awake to the audacity of our Christian faith. But when the news cycles and the day-to-day realities that we experience make it painfully clear that the world is not yet as it should be, I want to believe in the second coming. And when scripture reminds us of God's deep concern for the well-being of the whole world, I want to hope in what it signifies. When through prophets like Jeremiah, God presents an alternate vision for how we can live with one another in righteousness and in peace, I want to work towards such a vision now, even while we wait for its full realization. And I wonder... What if the second coming nudges us less toward some kind of cosmic clock or some tidy set of metaphysical proofs that we should defend or deny, but instead toward a way of being in the world? What if our challenge now is to find hope in theological imagination rather than dogmatic certainty? What might the world around us look like If all our actions were animated by the hope that while the despair around us and sometimes even within us is so very real, God's transforming presence can and will bring about the advent of an alternate reality. I don't know, but I wonder. Challenge and hope. Another challenge we face today is that our world conditions us for either-or thinking while Advent is a season of paradox that invites us to embrace the tension of both and thinking. It tells us that the one that we wait for has already come and is present with us now. What? In the days to come, our readings will tell us that Jesus is both infant and Savior, that while we know that inequity and hunger are unfortunate realities, God has already filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Advent takes the signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars and places them right down to earth to remind us that God still has work to do here and we're invited to join in it. What if our calling is not so much to make sense of these seeming contradictions, but merely to sense them? In all of their fullness, as they bring us into deeper engagement with this season's joyful anticipation and painful yearning. Advent is all about waiting, in the sort of tension that neither naive optimism nor self-protective cynicism can resolve. We wait and hope for the arrival of something better than we experience now, and we ache because we sense that it is possible but it is not yet fully here. For those of us who face illness or injury of mind, body, or spirit and hope for healing, who are detained at this country's border and wait to be reunited with family and make a home where we can thrive, who grieve losses of many kinds and yearn for wholeness, who are imprisoned by debt, addiction, despair, or incarceration and ache for freedom, Who face estrangement, especially during the holidays, and seek reconciliation, who experience poverty and wish for opportunities to flourish, who fear the threat of gun violence and long for safety, who sit even now with a tangle of grief and fear and excitement about this season of rapid change in this church and who pray for new energy, for direction, for excitement, and for growth. Waiting is both agony and a hopeful call that we take up with patience and with urgency. There's something so real about Advent, then, to which we can all relate. If we're keeping watch at all for the arrival of a new everyday reality, we're also yearning for a better world, and we're wondering how long we can wait for it. Heidi Neumark, a Lutheran pastor who writes of her ministry in an under-resourced community in the Bronx, says that she loves Advent best because it reflects how she feels most of the time. I might not feel sorry during Lent when the liturgical calendar begs repentance, she writes. I might not feel victorious even though it's Easter morning. I might not feel full of the Spirit even though it's Pentecost and the liturgy spins out fiery gusts of ecstasy. But during Advent, I am always in sync with the season. Advent unfailingly embraces and comprehends my reality. And what is that? I think of the Spanish word, anelo, or longing. Advent is when the church can no longer contain its unfulfilled desire and the cry of anelo bursts forth Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. It is a challenge to connect our hope with our longing for the days that are surely coming when healing, home, wholeness, freedom, reconciliation, flourishing, safety, and growth will be reality for all. We have to be able to imagine that reality, to wonder about it, if we're going to connect our hopeful longing to our purpose and our work in the world as individuals and together as a community challenge, and hope. So friends, stand up and raise your heads because Jeremiah assures us that the days are surely coming when righteousness and peace will prevail and because Jesus, the mysterious incarnation of divine love, assures us that our redemption is drawing near. One of my favorite womanist theologians and ethicists, Dr. Emily Towns, puts it simply, by saying, God is not through. And so our calling in the present is to take the challenge that hope gives us. And so especially in Advent, we wonder when the world will be better. We watch and we wait for signs that God's redemptive promise is sure. And while we wait, watch, and wonder, we also work toward the horizon of hope that God's word enables us to imagine. May we live our prayers for the world together with our eyes wide open and our feet moving because God is not through. Alleluia. Amen.
0: We give you thanks, holy God, for Jesus Emmanuel, who came to be your living word. To baptize us with spirit and fire. To feed the hungry, to humble the mighty, and to announce the good news of your coming realm.
2: With thanks and praise, we offer ourselves to you.
0: Sharing this holy meal, remembering Christ dying and rising and praying, Come, Lord Jesus.
2: Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, upon this bread, this cup, these people, Christ's body and blood given in love for the world.
0: Make us one in the Spirit, one in the Church, and one with Christ our Lord.
2: Make us gentle, joyful, and thankful people,
0: serving our neighbors and worshiping you alone.
2: Keep us in the peace of Christ until you gather us at your table in glory.
0: O God, as we wonder at all you have done, all you are doing, and all that you will do, we are bold to pray the prayer that Jesus taught us, saying, Our Our Father, Father, who art art in heaven, heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy Thy kingdom kingdom come. come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information,